To be able to create something that people didn't think they could have, that they deserve, that I believe is actually a human right. You know, I mean, that is the biggest privilege of my life. You know, I think if you have something inside of you that says that you want to solve a big, hairy problem in an emerging market, do it. On this episode, I talked with Silvana Cutterson. With a master's degree from Columbia, plus a law degree from Harvard, she was a high-achieving international lawyer. She became a foreign policy advisor to Barack Obama, a special consultant to the World Bank, and a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. Then in her 30s, she decided to pivot to a real challenge, being an entrepreneur focused on fixing healthcare in Bangladesh, one of the most densely populated countries in the world. Her startup, Prava Health, is now the fastest growing healthcare brand in Bangladesh, serving a half million people, and has been featured in Forbes, The Financial Times, and Fast Company. She's amazing, and I think you'll enjoy my conversation with her. I'm Brett Waters. I've been in Silicon Valley my entire life, immersed in the world of entrepreneurship, innovation, and venture capital. I run a startup accelerator program named Fourthly. This is the Fourthly Podcast. Hey, Silvana. Hi, Brett. How are you? Good. So where are you today? I'm in Dhaka, Bangladesh. Ah, Bangladesh. And uh, it's a pretty big city where you are. Is that right? Dhaka is one of the biggest cities in the world. It's between 30 and 40 million people, depending on how you count it. Yeah, that is huge. Okay, so uh, quick background on yourself. Um, so I'm Silvana Kader Sinha. I'm the founder, chair, and CEO of Brava Health. I'm American by birth. I was born and raised in the United States, but my family is originally from Bangladesh, and I um, visited here frequently as a child and throughout my life, but never lived here until I started my company um, around nine years ago. Exactly, I had the idea to start the company and moved here eight years ago. Um, before that, um, I had a career as an international lawyer, primarily working in big law. Also spent some time in U.S. foreign policy and management consulting. Um, worked and lived in Afghanistan with the World Bank and the U.S. government. Um, and, you know, never really thought of myself as an entrepreneur, although I think I was always very enterprising in, in the things that I did. Um, but was at this stage of my career, I was about 10 years out of grad school, I was visiting Bangladesh for a family wedding and my mom was hospitalized for a basic appendectomy. And I had heard about the challenges of the healthcare system from family members and loved ones, um, but I had never seen it myself until this experience. And so that was um, just a very eye-opening experience. We were very lucky to be in the VIP suite of a fancy private hospital. Actually, I like to say, and I don't even know if even you know this, My, I feel my family's my, my entrepreneurial journey starts even before I was born. My grandfather founded the oldest pharmaceutical company in this no country kidding. in 1954. Wow. And so because of that, and it's now a publicly traded company here in Dhaka Stock Exchange, um, we were in the VIP suite of one of the fancy private hospitals here in Dhaka. And despite having access to the best care, um, the surgery was delayed and there were all kinds of complications. We ended up having to airlift my mom to Bangkok for a second surgery. And a year later, she had to have a third surgery in the United States. And fortunately, she's doing better now, but it, you know, just struck me that Bangladesh is one of the fastest growing economies in the world and had this huge population, has a huge population of 170 million people and this huge middle class that's driving the growth. And I had always worked in emerging and frontier markets, so I knew that sort of intellectually and as a professional. Um, But I saw that despite all of this progress, no amount of money could afford you access to high quality healthcare. And, you know, that, you know, we were very lucky to be able to airlift my mom to Bangkok, but not everyone has that privilege. Um, And so I kind of became obsessed with that problem. Um, And that's how I came to starting my company nine years ago. 
So I love the way you left your last sentence there because I always, I always say that uh, most great startups begin with a founder who notices a problem we're solving and then becomes obsessed with solving it. And so what you just, that sentence you ended with there articulates that perfectly. <laughs> well, I think you have to be obsessed, you know, I think you have to be obsessed. You have to become obsessed and it just has to kind of live inside of you yeah, in this right. way to keep you, to keep you going through all the ups and downs it takes to try to solve it. Right. Okay. So what's the solution? So our solution is basically an integrated outpatient healthcare system. So just to step back for a minute, I mentioned, you know, that there's huge gaps in quality in healthcare in Bangladesh. Um, so, just to put some numbers around that, at the time that we entered the market, um, every day, and, and even now, actually, every day you have thousands of Bangladeshis and billions of, every, yeah, that, billions of dollars every year that leave the country to access healthcare abroad. And the quality gaps that exist in the market are rampant. At the time that we entered the market, there were four international standard labs for a country of 170 million people. Today, there are six, which is still not enough, but it's a start. Um, and the average amount of time doctors are spending with patients is 48 seconds. And 20% <laughs> of drugs in the market are counterfeit. <laughs> so I, you know, I, I reflected... I spent a year, I went on a global listening tour and I reflected on all the lessons. I kind of put my consulting hat on. I wasn't a healthcare person at all, actually. And I reflected on all the lessons that we as a global community had learned about healthcare. Um, and, you know, I think there's a few things that, that, that struck me. Um, number one, um, digital health alone um, struggles to solve all the problems of healthcare. Mm -hmm. um, which I think now we know even better than we knew then. Um, but that, that was my perception, particularly when you, at the time, a lot of people in 2013 were obsessed with these Uber of models, right? A lot of people said, why don't you- The Uber of models, the right? Uber or the Airbnb of models, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And a lot of people said to me, so why don't you just build Uber for healthcare for my right? This is before people realized how terrible the economics were of those businesses. But <laughs> then I realized that well, I was a little bit doubtful of the economics of them, but I also thought those models only work if you have infrastructure, right? You need cars in San Francisco for Uber to work. You need there to be cars with drivers that are idle. Um, and Bangladesh, as I've mentioned, has these gaps in quality as it is. Um, the other thing I observed was that um, the economics of healthcare is, um, is built around infrastructure and particularly in the outpatient setting around diagnostics. Um, and, and then the last thing was that healthcare across Asia is very hospital centric. And we hear that complaint about the healthcare system in the United States, but it's much worse in Asia. Um, there's a culture that really drives people into hospitals. Um, and when I say that the patient seeking behavior is such that most people as their first point of entry into the healthcare system are showing up to a hospital. Um, and the person checking them in has been given a target to convert them from an outpatient to an inpatient, huh. um, to keep them in the hospital for a minimum of three days, because that's how you make the most money, et cetera, et cetera. All these things that are not aligned with the best interest. Mm -hmm. So taking all of these lessons into account, I thought, you know what I want to do? I want to build, I want to build something that keeps people out of the hospital um, and really works to build trust in healthcare. Um, and that is a big, hairy problem to solve. And there are a lot of people trying to solve it all over the world in different ways. Um, but this is a country where trust is is really lacking. And how can you build trust when you're spending 48 seconds with your provider, you know? 
Um, and so I was very attracted to the primary care piece of it and the, the opportunity to build a relationship, a long-term relationship with the patient, also to invest in primary care in a way that keeps people out of the hospital. But because of the lack of quality labs in the country, um, I realized I couldn't outsource that um, because, you know, um, there aren't enough quality labs. And also that's where the economics is. And, um, you know, the biggest margin product in outpatient healthcare, and in fact, even in most hospitals is actually the lab. And so what we've built is a vertically integrated outpatient healthcare system. That includes primary care, secondary care, lab and imaging diagnostics, outpatient procedures, and pharmacy, all under one umbrella, both in clinic as well as remote and virtual care. Mm-hmm. And um, so we brought Bangladesh in addition to its first outpatient healthcare system, um, its first patient app, um, which was the first of its kind when we launched in 2018. And um, initially that app was focused on appointment bookings and medical records, which by themselves were novel for our country because most digi- no, most healthcare data is not digital in this country. And most patients are literally carrying medical records around in bags and suitcases. Mm-hmm. And so through our app, they can not only upload their records from outside of Brava, or they can show up at Brava and we'll scan it for them, but they can also access all their Brava records in one place. Again, providing continuity for the provider as well as for the patient. Um, and then, but but we had, didn't roll out telemedicine any pharma right away. We had big plans to do it in 2021. And then, of course, the pandemic hit, which pre-pawned the launch of our digital product. So we rolled out. We were the first provider to partner with the government on telemedicine in March of 2020 and then launched e-pharmacy in May of 2020. And so now we have kind of the full range of both um, digital and in-clinic offerings for the outpatient setting. So we've been serving patients for about five and a half years now in Bangladesh and have just crossed 500,000 patients. Wow. Wow. That's quite a success. And and are you incorporated as a for-profit or a non-profit? Or? We're absolutely a for-profit. It was, it was very important to me that we built this as a for-profit business because I knew that there was an opportunity both to have impact and to make money. Um, and I saw, you know, I observed when I was on my listening tour in that first year, I observed that scaled healthcare systems in Asia trade at two to three times the multiples of scaled healthcare systems in the United States. Interesting. And this is purely because of excess demand in these markets. Um, and so if you can build a brand, and scale it, you have a much bigger opportunity because there's not as much competition. So in India, for example, less than 20% of the healthcare system is dominated by big players. In the United States, I think now it's 60, 70%. There's been so much consolidation. So much consolidation, yeah. And in Bangladesh, it's less than 10%. It's even less than half of India. And so part of how we've been able to grow and scale so quickly, I I always say it's partly because I'm a great founder and I have an awesome team. Of course, but it's frankly equally because there's very little competition. And we have an NPS of 85 to 90 consistently. Again, partly because I think we're doing a great job on patient care, but largely also because I think people don't have the expectations that they really should for what they should get from their healthcare system. And so we're trying to raise the bar for those expectations as well. So as you, as you've scaled, what have been the, um, you know, what have been the barriers to scale? What have been, what what have been the hard parts about scaling? Yeah. Oh gosh, so many. (laughs) Um, So if you would ask me that question, if I met you when I first started the company and I had my original pitch deck and investors would ask me that question, I used to say human capital. And human capital is a challenge. We don't have enough nurses and technicians and doctors in this country for the population. Um, 
But in fact, human capital has been much easier than I expected. And in, and in fact, our attrition rate among doctors is 0%. Every doctor who comes to work at Brava stays at Brava. They like working at Brava. They like being part of a brand that prioritizes patient care. They like getting access to international training opportunities and getting access to di digital health offerings. It's actually been access to actual capital. And so when I started the company, I naively um, thought that if I proved the economics of my business, investors would come. Yep. Um, and I, it was the beginning, it was the very beginnings of kind of the startup ecosystem building up in Bangladesh. I would say Bangladesh is about five years behind Pakistan and maybe 15 to 20 years behind India in terms of development of the local ecosystem. So I was one of the early founders. There was a big digital, uh, sorry, fintech company called Bcash, which in 2013, 2014 was the, one of the biggest fintech companies in the world and is, is still kind of the biggest, most scaled startup in this country. But other than them, there was really nobody. Um, there were a few others like me who were starting out. Um, and so, and, and venture capital had not come meaningfully to Bangladesh yet. Um, but it was my estimation that, oh, well, we have this huge, one of the fastest growing economies in the world mm -hmm. and, you know, health sector growing even faster than the economy as you see yeah. across emerging markets. So sure, I'll, I'll, I'll get enough money to get us to prove the economics of the business and then the investors are going to come. So we proved the economics of the business in, the, in 10 months. So November of <laughs> wow. 2018, we broke even at the operating unit level. And I hit the ground running. I went to JPM Health in January of 2019 and launched my Series B. I've still not raised a Series B round. Um, so that has been the biggest surprise and, and frankly, disappointment um, in the sense that I am really impatient to scale given all the milestones that we continue to achieve. Um, but what I've realized is that markets are not efficient, you know, and 80% um, of venture dollars are going to businesses headquartered in New York, Massachusetts, and California. Mm -hmm. Forget about Louisiana or Atlanta. Uh, right, right, right. Startups right. in those markets also uh, right. have to compete more aggressively. And then for Silicon Valley, I don't know that, frankly, many of your colleagues, Brett, can place Bangladesh on a map. You know, um, <laughs> even though it is. You were probably right. Of, you were probably yeah. right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, unfortunately, I think. It's just far away. It's just physically oh, oh. far away, and, right, right. and it's hard for people to understand what the challenges are that we're we're dealing with here, and how big the healthcare opportunity really is. Um, so that's been probably the biggest challenge and the biggest surprise. But there are good things that have come of that. I have to say, to any founders who are listening, um, I think the discipline that it's taught us in terms of getting on top of our economics, understanding the economics of our business, um, being super efficient with every dollar that we raise. And we we have raised $15 million in equity from people who have even put in 10, 15, $25,000 checks. Like, you know, and so we have stretched every dollar and taken every, every advantage that we can um, from the amazing people who have taken a bet on us. Um, and so there, I think that there's there's a discipline that it's forced on us that's been really positive. That if we had, you know, had somebody hand us a pot of money in the really early days of the beginning, maybe would have changed the way that we run the business. Yeah. So ultimately, I think there are good things about. It. Yeah. No, I can tell you that you know, as somebody who kind of studies the reasons why startups succeed or fail, uh, there are so many examples of companies that you know raise too much capital. Um, and one of the reasons they failed was that they, uh, you know, when you have a whole bunch of somebody else's money in the bank, you tend to make different, start making different decisions than when, you know, than when it's your own money or, or when, or when the money in the bank is money that 
you know, that you worked hard to create out of earnings, right? <laughs> um, and so there are many examples of companies that raised too much capital and failed. And there are many other examples of companies that, that bootstrapped most of the way and were a huge success. Well, I hope that we'll, we'll be considered in, in that latter category. Well, and, and, and um, I mean, it's how, you know, you've scaled, um, uh, I think you said 500,000 patients yes. now. And where, you know, where were you two years ago? Yeah, we were at 250K um, exactly two years ago. Yeah. yeah. So you've doubled in two years. So that's pretty damn good scaling um, to, to happen. Yeah, and here. that's post-COVID. We experienced massive patient acquisition when the pandemic hit. But then most of the patients we've acquired have actually been post-COVID, um, which which I'm really pleased about because, you know, that was something we had to really, we had to really win. And um, I think we had an opportunity to get brand recognition in the market during the pandemic, yeah. then a lot of people thought of us as a COVID testing center. Uh, and right. we had to then educate them. I mean, we had we experienced almost free patient acquisition, right, um, for a period of time. Um, but then we had to tell people, oh, wait a minute, guys, like we do a lot more stuff. And so we had that opportunity to kind of convert those newly acquired patients into long-term patients and then convert them also into ambassadors um, to help us bring, bring new patients into our system. Okay, so let's talk about the customer acquisition process because you just yes. said, you just said a couple of interesting things there. Uh, especially liked how you ended with ambassadors, which is basically you know a way of having people out in the community evangelizing for you. Yes, and in healthcare, I think that's the best thing, right? Any sure. one of us. Oh, sure. If I, if I get a rash on my arm, I call my friends and I'm like, guys, who's a good dermatologist, right? Like, I think that's right. the best way we all figure out where to go for our healthcare. Right. Right. Okay. So let's use your use case, rash on the arm. So somebody has a rash on their arm and first thing they're going to do is call their friends, mm -hmm. <laughs> call, call their mom. Um, and then kind of what are the options? So the options are, I could just go to the ER at the big hospital and say, I have a rash on my yeah, arm. That's right. They could go to the ER at a big hospital. Um, they could go online and book a telemedicine business uh, uh -huh. visit with us or with uh -huh. another. There are other. There are a few other pure play telemedicine providers in the country. Um, what we believe is really part of the magic of our model is we can use telemedicine as a triage tool. Yeah. But then we also can then convert you into coming to our clinic, which is often needed for something like a rash. Right. The doctor in some cases can diagnose a rash um, over over a telemedicine visit, but in some cases he may want to or she may want to do a scrape or want to just examine it, right? And so that's where drop-off happens for a lot of pure play telemedicine businesses. And for us, we can continue to serve the patient down that spectrum. They can come into our clinic, see the dermatologist, have the scrape done and have it analyzed in our lab. So kind of really that end-to-end one-stop offering that's not going to try to convert them into a hospital patient, right? Um, so yeah, that's kind of the journey. Um, how do we, in terms of the customer acquisition process, I would say we acquire patients through two different channels. Um, so there's the B2C channel, the direct-to-consumer channel, which includes corporate business and corporate clients. Uh, and then there's the B2B channel. So for us, B2B is not corporate. For us, B2B is what some of your listeners might be familiar with as sort of the Quest Diagnostics or LabCorp model, where we partner with other hospitals and clinics to either collect samples and send them to us, or we send our phlebotomist to their site and collect the sample and then bring it back to our lab. So the B2B business is a little more, it's a little more a traditional way that healthcare mm -hmm. is delivered. Mm -hmm. um, 
However, our CAC is higher and our LTV is lower for that channel. Um, and the reason is they don't get to have the Brava experience. If you think about it, if you go into one medical and they draw your blood, they send it out to Quest or LabCorp, you don't really know which one it is and you kind of don't really pay attention, right? That's, that's completely transparent to you as the patient. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And so that's why the LT, we don't get the stickiness um, that we get. For the B2C channel, we're engaging the, with them. They've come to us either because, you know, we are really active on digital, on social media, Facebook by the number of users. In uh -huh. um, Dhaka, is the second largest city in the world, I think, by number of users for Facebook. So we're really big on Facebook as well as on Google Ads. Uh -huh. um, and then uh, we also have corporate clients. 20% um, of our revenues come from corporate clients, but we still have to market directly to those employees to get them to come to product. So this, so corporate client would be uh, a big company would sign up with you and say, exactly. I, yeah, I want to have all of my pay, all of my employees have access to you. Exactly. So Unilever or Chevron or the UN agencies or U.S. embassies, one of our clients, um, and the kinds of services they take from us may vary. So for some of them, in our best case scenario, they'll sign up for a membership plan, which is like unlimited access to outpatient healthcare for a year. Um, that's rare, unfortunately, because the concept of prepaying for healthcare in this country is very new. Only 1% of the population has health insurance. So the corporates have not really gotten into that yet, but we've seen a huge growth of it since pre-pandemic and post-pandemic. They are making some investments, but it tends not to be the membership plan. It tends to be more an annual health check. They might pay for an annual health check for their employees, or they'll just offer, you know, um, free clinics, um, you know, free diabetes screenings at their, you know, will come to their office and, and do um, or we'll do, you know, specialized occupational therapy for people who work in a factory or in a right. um, power plant or something like that. So the corporate business um, is it, we, it falls under B two C also in that we get to engage with the employees and we we it, there's more stickiness to that. We get to build that relationship. Sure, sure. And I and I assume I assume the health outcomes are better, right? Because the exactly the you know better engagement usually leads to better health outcomes. That's right. That's absolutely right. So the B2C part of the business is, I, I think, the more interesting part of the business, but it's also the mo more profitable part of the business. Um, the CAC is lower, and it keeps getting lower because our brand value keeps growing. And um, the CAC is lower, and the LTV is higher. Um, however, I will say, um, as we are now focused on bringing the business to cash flow positive, given the challenges, the fastest way to drive volume into my lab is through the B2B channel. And so B2B is becoming a bigger percentage of the business as we're getting closer to cash flow positive. Although it takes longer to get there with B2B, it's easier to do because the B2B business is a direct function of the size of your sales force. So in the beginning of the year, we could collect samples from five out of 64 districts in this country. Right. Today, we can collect samples from 35. And by the end of the year, you will be able to collect samples from the entire country. And is, that, is, that, is that a regulatory issue or is that just uh, having, the, having the staff? It's no, it's just a question like it, the B2B business is it's just a function of the size of your sales force. If you can think about like pharmaceutical sales reps or right, like yeah, yeah, it's yeah. just like the number of people you have out there, each of them is going to bring in a certain number of samples a day and a certain volume of revenue a day. And so 
it's a, and because the lab is underutilized and we only have one clinic with 19 rooms, the telemedicine business has grown. We've rolled out on-demand lab testing, which is a B2C product. So anywhere within Dhaka City, within three hours, we'll come and collect your sample um, and you'll get the result and it'll be analyzed in a Prava quality lab. Um, so that's another way we're driving volume into the lab, but basically driving volume into the lab through the B2B and B2C channels is how we're bringing the business to cash flow positive. But the B2B business has become a bit bigger because it's it's easier to kind of just add salespeople. So our sales force is now 100 people. Got it. Well, I totally, uh, I hope some of my Stanford students are listening because uh, they hear me pontificate all the time about how every single venture distills down to one equation, which is customer acquisition cost against lifetime value of a customer. So what do you consider a very healthy ratio? five or above so ltv being 5x cac right? so we're at five now on oh, average perfect. um the but b2c is seven. Oh wow yeah b2c is actually that's why i like that that's why that's my favorite part of the business right yeah, yeah, yeah. um and b2b is a little less than like between three and four yeah and by the way, so a friend of mine who's a uh, venture capitalist, he likes to add another dimension to this, which is um, uh, velocity. And so, and so he he uses a metric he calls CAC D, which is how whatever 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 you spent on CAC, how long does it take for you to double that? How long does it take for that to come back at two x? Right. So if you spent four, spent fourteen bucks to get a customer, how long does it take to get twenty eight bucks back? Uh, right. And that's kind of his way of ad adding a third dimension to the equation, which is which is mm -hmm. velocity time. That's uh, interesting. Yeah, just getting you know getting getting five you know getting five x back in you know two years that's great. Getting five x back in ten years that's a whole different thing. Right. Yeah. Well, it's also been challenging for us because we and I'd love to chat with you about this separately, perhaps. But um, is how to how to actually calculate LTV because if you looked during the pandemic, patient seeking behavior changed for all of us, right? Sure, sure. I know many women my age group who didn't get mammograms. You know, they just skipped them because they didn't want to have to go to the doctor and expose themselves to COVID. So uh, a lot of people weren't doing the things they were doing in those two years. Really, I would say from twenty mid twenty twenty to mid twenty twenty two, then started coming back. And um, so for us, that data also, the data we have on the patients who were, some of them were dormant because maybe they were, you know, they were not, they didn't have chronic disease, didn't have any reason they needed to come in. And so we've had to kind of figure out ways to extrapolate. Um, and I think we've erred on the side of being conservative, which I always tend to do. But yeah, would love to get your perspective on that. Sure. Yeah, sure. So, um, Silvana, this is a great conversation. Uh, probably talk all all day um but i know you've got stuff to do but i'm curious kind of i mean you've been on this amazing journey um and you know you've, you've tackled a pretty tough problem right that you know that you could have chosen to be an entrepreneur anywhere uh and take on any particular challenge but you chose to be an entrepreneur in in bangladesh and take on you know the hardest challenge of all which is healthcare healthcare for uh um healthcare that is meaningful health healthcare that delivers um meaningful outcomes um uh, and you're doing it in a you know in a in a city in a country where there's you know some some cultural um and systemic reasons why 
Um, you know, a lot of people haven't historically gone and sought out really good healthcare. Um, or as you said, I like your, your example of how the, the big hospitals are really incented to simply get you in there for at least three days because that's the only way they can make any money. <laughs> so, you know, so you've taken on this big, uh, big challenge and uh, you've had tremendous success. And what, what do you think you've learned along the way that you would share, share with others? You know, if somebody, somebody came to you and said, you know, I'm going to, I'm thinking about doing a startup business and I'm going to do it in, in the developing world, uh, in, in a sector that is difficult to raise capital for. <laughs> <laughs> Would you just simply tell them run away, don't do it? <laughs> <laughs> um, there are moments when I might, but I think overall, you know, it's funny. I was actually chatting with the recent. Um, there was a young woman who founded one of the very successful startups here in Bangladesh called Shop Up, who was at um, who 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 just graduated from GSB at Stanford. Um, and I just met up with her today. Actually, she was here in Dhaka, and she was saying, you know. I find it really hard to connect to the problems of America. You know, everything's pretty much set up. She's like, these are third, third, she's like, the, you know, having a um, payment go through in three seconds versus five seconds, that is a problem that people are obsessed with. But she's like, I can't get that excited about it. <laughs> in Bangladesh, we are dealing with first order problems, right? We are dealing with yeah. fundamental problems that people have in living productive, healthy lives, which the vast majority of Americans are, are not dealing with the same kinds of challenges. Although I would say the challenges in rural America of healthcare are also very big, but yeah. Um, so, you know, I think that these are, these are, I, I, I'm a, I love the fact that I'm able to focus on this first order problem. You know, I, I it's, it, the question, the kind of question that you asked, I, um, I was asked this question by, the head of healthcare for a major private equity group in the United States, which has not invested in Bangladesh yet, but is looking at the market. And um, he knows my journey. He's tried to make introductions for me to investors in Silicon Valley and beyond unsuccessfully, um, mostly because of the unfamiliarity with the market. And he said to me, you know, I, I know how hard it's been for you. Like, why didn't you just do this in America? You know? <laughs> and, um, and I said, well, first of all, I did do the math. And I did see that there was a big financial opportunity, but also, you know, I'm a, I, I, I know the founder of One Medical. I am a patient at One Medical. I've never said to him in my life that I never thought there could be healthcare like this. Well, People say that to me on a weekly basis, here yeah. you know, to be able to create something that people didn't think they could have that they deserve that I believe is actually human right that they have, you know, I mean, that is the biggest privilege of my life, you know, and, and the levels of the impact. I mean, I employ minorities, um, you know, I, I employ people, um, women, I think, you know, creating opportunities for women in these markets and um, they're, the levels of the impact are just more than I could have imagined. And um, that whatever I do for the rest of my life, this will always, be the biggest privilege, you know, that I've been able to do this in this market and that it's really hard. So if I, if I would say the answer to your question on advice is keep going. You know, I think if you have something inside of you that says that you want to solve a big hairy problem in an emerging market, do it because we need smart, motivated people to solve these problems. Um, but it's really, really hard. And 
I think I'm grateful I came to entrepreneurship a bit later in life. I started my company when I was 37. And I think because of that, I had I had more emotional resilience and I had more patience than I would have had I done it younger. And I'm grateful for that because sometimes the only thing you can do is just get out of bed and keep going. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's, it, it is hard. I mean, it breaks your heart. So many of the things that you have to deal with that will happen. Um, but it's worth it. It's a good answer. So, Ivana, thanks for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. It's and, been congrats, a pleasure. and congrats on all the success. This has been the Fourthly Podcast. If you have ideas for future episodes or people you think I should interview, send me an email at brett@fourthly.com. And don't forget to rate and share this show. It really helps. Until next time, I'm Brett Waters. Thanks so much for listening.